This podcast is brought to you by Score Foundation. Hi, my name is George Abraham, and welcome to Iway Conversations. My guest today is Peter Donovan from Australia. He's a financial planner and a cricketer. Hi, Peter. Welcome. Hi, George. Thanks very much for having me. Let's begin by you telling me how blind cricket uh, started in Australia. Well, George, it's been going a um, hundred years now, or a hundred and one years actually. Um, oh. In Australia, we've got like um, about six different states. Um, it started in Victoria in Melbourne, Victoria, in 1921. And what happened was there was a workshop where vision impaired and blind people used to work, um, making cane baskets and various yeah. other things. Yeah. Anyway, um, one time in the lunch break, uh, a lot of the vision impaired people, they wanted to play cricket, but they couldn't play with tennis balls because they couldn't hear it. Um, one guy got a, a, a can and filled it with rocks, but that wasn't very good on the bat. It sort of broke bats. So one of the play, one of the people um, made the first ever cane ball and he wove a round cane ball and inside of it he had to put something to give it a bit of weight and to give it a bit of noise. So he put he put ball bearings and beer bottle tops inside and the beer bottle tops would connect with the metal ball bearings and that would make a ringing noise and they would bowl underarm and that was the beginning of blind cricket in Australia. 1921 at the Royal Institute for the Blind in Victoria. Uh, how did the blind uh, people actually uh, get to know and feel for the game? Ah, well, cricket has been crickets. You're born with a cricket bat in your hand in Australia, just like India. I mean, you know, everybody knows about cricket. Um, but I think what really sparked it was the fact that some of the people, uh, like, just like in India, uh, everyone, as soon as they can walk virtually, they're down at the park throwing a cricket ball or throwing a, you know, a bat around, um, tennis balls, that sort of stuff. And everyone at school used to always play in the lunchtime. They'd get the rubbish bin out and they'd use that as the wicket and they'd bowl tennis balls. And... You know, a lot of people uh, would do that, but I think the blind people felt they were being left out because they couldn't see or hear a tennis ball. Um, every time they would try and bat, they got bowled because someone bowling to them could see the rubbish bin and they couldn't see the ball. So I think it was really, um, I think it was a matter of they had to develop something so that they could be enjoy the sport and participate in the sport. You had mentioned to me some time ago that uh, you had you were the first captain of the Australian team, and that was sometime around 1987 or 89. So uh, tell me a little bit about the international cricket that uh, you guys were involved with that early. Okay, so that was, 1987 was the first official side that was picked by the Australian Blind Cricket Council. But there were some, before that, there were some invitational type teams that went um, I understand before my time they went to Sri Lanka 
um, and may have gone to some other places, but they were just a group of people who decided they were vision impaired, wanted to go on a holiday and use the excuse of blind cricket to go on that holiday. Um, I think they played a few games, but they weren't representing Australia, but they were Australians playing blind cricket. Yeah. So anyway, what happened in 1987, um, it was decided that Australia would do something in our region of Oceania to try and develop um, blind cricket to, because all we had was our own country to play against. So in 1987, the Australian Blind Cricket Council contacted the New Zealand Blind Cricket Association and suggested that we might send a, a team over to help develop the game in New Zealand. And yeah. a team was picked from Australia, of which I was fortunate enough to be the first ever captain. And we went over there and we um, toured around New Zealand. At that stage, the the uh, Auckland was the dominant cricketing city in, in New Zealand. Um, we started our trip around, we went by bus and we landed in Christchurch and then we went around by bus to Christchurch, Dunedin, around a few places down the South Island and up to the North Island. But every day we would have a coaching clinic with the locals and we would give them the benefit of our experience in terms of bowling, batting, fielding. Um, and that was also, you know, with different categories too, B1s, B2s, B3s. So even we even had, you know, B1s coaching, B1s, B2s coaching, B2s, and because they had they had an affinity with them. They knew what their site was like, you know, not just trying to say to someone here, this is how you bowl or here, this is how you bat. They were actually saying, well, I'm like you, and this is how I do it. And so we would have a coaching clinic every day, and then we'd say, right, yeah, now tomorrow we're going to have a game and we're going to use the skills that you were taught yesterday to see how you go the next day. And some days we actually stayed on and played a couple of days and might even blend the sides together, might even blend the Australian side with some of the locals and have two composite sides. But in most cases, it was it was the Australian team having a game against the locals. And that was a wonderful developmental tour. And I think it was the real birth of New Zealand blind cricket on the international stage that they went to, like, as you know, George, 1998, they played in the first ever World Cup. So they've virtually gone from 1987 having one team to, you know, 11 years later, um, having a national team to play in a World Cup. If you know of anyone with vision impairment, who needs guidance on living life with blindness, please share the IWA National Toll-Free Helpline number 1-800-5320-469. The number is 1-800-5320-469. I also remember, uh, I think on one of my trips, down under, uh, probably it was when I came to Melbourne, I'd met a gentleman called uh, Doug Sloan. And uh, one yep. of the things I remember while meeting him was that he was the guy who made the cricket balls. Now, uh, uh, from what I understand, the Australian cricket ball is made of cane and uh, ball bearings and beer tops. Uh, and it is a handmade stuff. 
So uh, how is this skill kind of passed on from generation to generation and uh, how do you maintain the standards and, uh, and is it just one guy who keeps making the balls or is there a group of people in different parts of Australia who make the ball? Well, that's a great question and that's another interesting story because when I said before that they made it with cane and bottle tops and yeah. ball bearings, yeah. that went on for a lot of years. Um, and a lot of those people worked in what we called sheltered workshops, and that's what they did. They did cane weaving, and they made them. But as time went on and on, um, less and less of them were involved in cane weaving. And so we got to a stage probably in the in the late 70s where we had a we only had about three ball makers, and we had every state playing blind cricket, and they couldn't keep up the demand. It just got too much for them to, because they used to make these balls by hand, and the strength that they had to have would, you know, would take would take them two or three hours to make one ball. So you yeah. can imagine if you imagine if we've got, you know, teams playing every weekend, um, there's a lot of balls required. So, yeah. so what they went away from they went away from the actual, and, and the other thing too was the cane ball had to be soaked in water, otherwise it would crack. Yeah. So. So you almost had to have two balls per game and you had a can of water behind the stumps at the at the non-bowling end. Um, and at the end of every over, you would put that the ball in that can of water and take out the other ball that was in there because one over was enough. It would crack if you didn't uh, – if it would crack if you didn't uh, keep it moist. Yeah. So they went away from that. And in the, in the, 80, in the late 70s, early 80s, they decided to go to nylon. And um, that's when that's when people like Doug Sloan, there was um, another guy called Ian Walsh. Uh, I think you met Ian Walsh at the at the World Cup. Um, he was a B one from Australia. Yeah. Um, he, he was a ball maker. Doug Sloan was a ball maker. Another guy from South Australia called Len Clothier was a ball maker. So uh, they found that they could make they could make the balls as good as the cane ball, if not better. But the thing was, they lasted a lot longer. So the so the demand and supply, demand could keep up with supply, whereas with cane balls it couldn't keep up. So they evolved that through to the through to the um, to the nylon ball, same same design, only it's used with a different, you know, still got lead shot lead shot and bottle tops in it, but it was just designed a little bit differently. Anyway, then this was a very demanding skill on behalf of these people making yeah. it. And as they as they aged, the skill wasn't be part, but wasn't being passed on to other people. Yeah. So Trevor Varo and myself saw that saw that we were gonna we were gonna have a real catastrophe on our hands that we were gonna run out of cricket balls. Yeah. So we actually um, uh, we actually got on to somebody in China who could we sent them the design and we got on to someone in China who could make a prefabricated ball out of woven plastic. Um, which wasn't actually woven like a cane ball, but it was had all the same features. And still yeah. we had the lead shot and the bottle tops in it. So we got onto a developer in China and that became the source of our balls for ongoing cricket. Um, and, but as you know, um, as you know, at the, I think it was the 2004 um, World Blind Cricket Council meeting, there was a great discussion on the ball and the the preferred. Well, I mean, even even back at the 1998 
sorry, 1996 meeting, we decided in Delhi to go with um, what we called the Indian ball, which was yeah. the Indian Pakistan ball, and yeah. that became the world that became the world ball then. Yeah. Um, people did try and change it over time, but it never ever succeeded. And so, um, a lot of our players in Australia now play with the 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 Indian ball, um, but some of them still have their games occasionally with the Australian ball. Uh, growing up as uh, a, a young visually impaired person in uh, Australia, mainly in Brisbane and then later on in Sydney, I believe, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what is life like for a person with vision impairment growing up in Australia? Uh, well, oh, I I often get asked that question because, see, I, w- I was born... I was born with a vision impairment, so I didn't develop one later ages like a lot of people do. So I virtually had to. I was born an albino, um, just like my dear friend in in India, who I played in the World Cup in two thousand and two against Sushil. Um, he was, yeah. yeah, he was an albino, and and we shared we shared many a story, Sushil and I, about um, albinism. But basically, you you were just born with a limited amount of vision and very fair skin and you just had to adapt to it and my sayings have always been the only thing i can't do is see <laughs> um everything else is everything else is possible yeah so i suppose um schooling was a bit hard because um i went to a school where you know it was traditional and you had white you know blackboards no whiteboards back then you had blackboards and you had chalk and you know wouldn't matter where you were sitting you had to be right on top of it to read it i couldn't read the the blackboard and um, I was I was sort of struggling very much so at school and then um, there was a school for the blind in Sydney um, called St Edmunds um, who produced quite a few <laughs> people who went to there produced quite a few good blind cricketers actually we did um, so I was sent I was sent down there to go to school down there and um, you know I competed with um, athletics and swimming and everything else that everyone else did. I mean, you know, it was just, I just thought it was just, I just didn't see as well as everyone else, but I didn't let it inhibit me in any way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, there's there's good support for people with vision impairment in this country, schooling and, and education wise. And, and um, but, but, you know, it was, it was, I'm talking about growing up in the sixties and seventies. I mean, it's much, it's much, much better now because it's all evolved, but yeah, it was, a, it was a bit tough at times, but Nothing, nothing to complain about. It's a lot of people worse off than I am. Uh, what was it like for you? How did the family and uh, your community kind of respond to you? And uh, uh, did they were they supportive, uh, or you had some kind of uh, discrimination? Ah, uh, no, I would say supportive. I'm I'm one of five children. Um, I've got an elder brother, an elder sister they don't have any vision impairments then i came along and i was an albino i have a sister five years younger than me she was also an albino and then another sister five years younger than her and she's got no sight impairment so i think the funniest thing was um as i said when i was i, I mean i can't i can't remember this because i was only a baby but the story goes around that um, um my mother was in hospital having me and Everyone was looking. My mother had very brown, dark brown hair, and when everyone used to go to the nursery and see all these babies in their little cots, they were always looking for the woman who had the blonde hair because 
my whole skin and everything was just totally blonde. And my mother said, "That's my son." They said, "Well, it couldn't be. You got brown hair." So, <laughs> she, I think, I think, I think she was discriminated against, not me. Um, but look, she didn't really understand at first. It wasn't until I was about two that someone said, "I think there's something wrong with his eyes." And at that stage, they uh, took me to a specialist, and that's when she was told that I was an albino because it it wasn't um, it wasn't something that was very, very, very common. Um, I mean, when I went to school, I saw more albinos never seen in my life, but you didn't really see them in the street or anything. Anyway, uh, my mother was very, very supportive. She said, well, okay, so that's what he is, so what do we do? And, and they just said, well, you know, not much you can do. I mean, he's he's born with it. He's got fair skin. He's got bad eyes. That's the way it is, so live with it. So we did, and, you know, they my mother and father did everything they possibly could to, you know, give me as normal a life as possible. Um, and my brothers and sisters were accepting of it. And then when my sister Therese came along five years after me, and she was an albino as well, well, it was the old hat then. Mum knew exactly what to do. So, no, I wouldn't say it was discriminatory. Um, I mean, kids at school were very cruel. Um, but that's just, I think that's the same everywhere. You know, kids pop, you know, make fun of you if you can't see properly or you look different. Um, yeah, kids can be very, very cruel. I think kids were more cruel to me than what adults were. Now, finance is something which involves a lot of numbers and uh, there are very few people with vision impairment who actually opt for uh, that kind of a profession where the strain on the eye could be quite serious. Uh, how come you got into finance? And tell me a little bit about what this financial planning is all about. How did it start and uh, what was the career like? Yeah, well, look, I have to say my my father um, used to work for a major institution in Australia for 26 years. He wasn't a financial planner, but he used to sell insurance. And um, when it came time for me to leave school and start work, I, like everyone else, applied for a lot of jobs and... Uh, in the week, uh, in one week, I got offered four jobs in 1977. A couple of them with banks. One of them was with the railway. Another one was with this financial institution that my father used to work for. He, he'd retired by then. And I said, Dad, what, what do you think? He said, you go with the one I used to work for. So <laughs> that was what got me into it. You know, you do what your father tells you, and, and I did. And look, I... I worked. I worked for them for twenty-seven, about twenty-seven years, and then it was a restructure, and so I was, um, I was made redundant. But I liked what I did. Um, it's a little bit different to. It's not all numbers, George. Yes, there's numbers involved, but it's not. All, it's not like being an accountant or a bookkeeper, where you all you're doing all day long is looking at numbers. A lot of it is strategic in terms of how do you organise things so that you are in a better place as your life goes on financially than what you would be if you didn't do something. So, um, yeah, I couldn't do numbers all day. That would that would just wreck my eyes. But um, you know, I do I do a lot of strategic stuff, and um, the area that I love being involved in in the financial planning area is. Um, looking after people with aged care needs. So as people age, um, they need to possibly go into 
um, facilities that look after them in their latter years? Um, how does that fit in with government benefits? All that sort of stuff is what I work out strategically because we're a little bit different here than I, I admire a lot of countries in the world, India being one of them where where generation after generation look after their parents. Um, unfortunately, in Australia, uh, that's not quite what it is here. So as people get older, um, family aren't necessarily looking after them. They can't live in their house anymore, so they've got to go into communities where they get looked after, and that's called aged care. So yeah. that's the area that I specialise in. So it's not all number crunching. A lot of it's strategy. A lot of it's uh, working out how, how to best organise things so that they get the best outcome. To support our work with the blind and visually impaired, you can visit the donate page on our website www.scorefoundation.org.in Please note www.scorefoundation.org.in Obviously, the times when you and I were growing up, uh, we never really knew about technology coming into our lives. Uh, when did technology come into your life and uh, in what form did it come in and uh, how did that change your professional world? Yeah, well, I, my first encounter with technology wasn't a nice one, I'd have to tell you, because um, I this institution I worked for, um, I was in a department that looked after um, insuring houses and cars and things. And all the records used to be put on a thing called microfish. I don't know if you remember microfish. Yes, of course. Um, and this, and the only way you could read microfish was you had to put it on a little glass plate, and it would enlarge it and throw it up on a mirror into a into a box thing that you would then read like a, a bit of a TV. The only trouble was, as soon as I'd stick my head into this box to try and read the small numbers, I would I would block out the um, the light, so I couldn't read anything. Right. So, so I was virtually useless. Um, and I, I, luckily I had a good boss and that, and they said, well, that's the only thing we've got here. You know, you know, you, you, that's, that's, that's how we operate. And, uh, and I said, and he said, look, I'm going to try and get you into another department that, that doesn't use this microfiche as, as much as anything else. And he sent me to another department. They actually used like the first computer I ever saw. Um, and they had a terminal which I could actually get read up very close with my my magnifying glass, and I could read it. Um, but I remember in those days, the there was a in this building I worked in. This building I worked in had 31 stories to it, and um, the second floor of the building took up the whole floor with a computer. Right. Now that computer would fit into a mobile phone. So that's how technology has changed. But yeah, look, I, I'd have to say technology hasn't really been my friend over the years. I I deal with it, but I'm not – I mean, a lot of – I'm fascinated. A lot of vision-impaired friends of mine, blind cricketers included, they're right into it. You know, they, they pro, they're programmers and they teach programs and they do all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I just never went – I never went down that path. I was sort of – I was like one oar was in the water and one oar was out of the water. Um, you know, I went from I went from no technology to almost complete technology. 
And even I remember when I went to university, um, there were no computers when I went to university in the 80s and early 90s. Every time, if we had to do an assignment or something, we had to go to the library and get out a book and research that book and then put it back in the library. Now they just go on to Mr. Google and tells them everything. Uh, you were telling me that on Wednesdays you're not free because you go out to play lawn ball. Uh, now, yeah. lawn, lawn ball is something that we don't hear of in India very much. So tell us a little bit about uh, what this lawn ball is about. You you play on a on a green, not as big as a cricket field. Yeah, it's a it's it's virtually a square a square grassed area. Yeah, um, probably about probably about um, thirty probably about thirty meters long and about thirty meters wide, and it gets divided up into lanes like swimming lanes. Yeah. Okay. And so the whole thing is called a green. The yeah. lanes are called rinks. Yeah. And what you do is you roll, it's all underarm. Yeah. You roll, you roll a little white ball down the other end. It's known as a jack or a kitty. Yeah. And then you have these big bowls that sit in your hand, but they have a weight on the inside of them. So it's called a bias. Yeah. So when you send this bowl down, you don't send it straight down. You've got to sort of send it out, and then the bias brings it back in again. Yeah. And the whole aim of the game is to try and get as close to that white thing down the other end. Um, and it's also it's also played for the vision impaired in the Commonwealth Games. Um, the vision impaired have a B2, B3 category. Yeah. Uh, which which a guy from Australia won it in 2018 in, in the Gold Coast. Um, two people from, I think it was Scotland, won it in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, so it, it is also a game that the vision impaired can play. Anyway, I, I play in a club here locally. I've been playing, I was playing that even when I was playing blind cricket, but only very, you know, mildly. And I use a monocular to see where that white thing is down the other end. Yeah. And then after you, after you see where that is, it's all memory then and skill. So that's wonderful, uh, Peter, to, that we could catch up. Uh, it's been a long time since we spoke last. And thank you very much for giving your time. And uh, it's been wonderful listening to you and, uh, and and your life journey. Well, thank you, George. I mean, you, you're part of my life journey. Met you in Delhi in 1996 when you were the visionary who formed the, the World Blind Cricket Council. Hadn't it been for you, I don't know where blind cricket would be today. So uh, the pleasure's all mine, mate. You, uh, you've you been a good friend for, what, we're 1996, so we're talking, what, uh, um, 26 years now since we first met. Um, and I hope our paths cross again sometime because uh, you're a great ambassador for people with vision impairment and you've, you're a great motivation to a lot of people throughout the world. Whenever we talk blind cricket, we always, the name George Abraham always comes up in discussions. Well, thank you for those kind words and uh, wish you the very best. This podcast was brought to you by Score Foundation.